Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's lunch hour lecture. We're, pre we're very pleased to have you all with us today. Uh, my name is Roxana Ramirez Herrera. I am a PhD student on assistive technology. My focus is on using technology to assist people with mobility impairments. And I belong to the Global Disability Innovation Hub, as well as the UCL Interaction Center. And so does our uh, lecturer, sorry, our presenter of today. Anyway, I have the pleasure of chairing today's lecture, Introduction to Neurodiversity and Non-Visible Disabilities, given by Dr. Daphne Suleyma Morgado Ramirez, who is a Senior Research Associate at the UCL Interaction Center. Uh, just a reminder that we will be taking questions via Slido. Information to join Slido was in the event information you received beforehand, but just in case you didn't receive it, you can go to sli.do and enter the code LHLAUTUMN, A-U-T-U-M-N. Um, now I'll hand it over to the speaker and I hope you enjoy the lecture of today. We are going to start with uh, what is disability. It is an umbrella term covering impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions. So as I said, my email is in the first slide, and I will present it again in the last one. So what is disability? Uh, it is an umbrella term uh, covering impairment, activity limitations, and participation restrictions. So an impairment is a disruption in body function or structure that can also be neurological, so in the brain. An activity limitation is a difficulty encountered by an individual in executing a task or action. And a participation restriction is a challenge experienced by an individual in involvement in life situations. Therefore, disability is a complex phenomenon uh, reflecting an interaction between features of a person's body and features of the society in which they live. The United Conventions of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that was uh, published in 2006 acknowledges that disability is an evolving concept but also stresses that disability results from the interaction between persons with impairments and attitudinal and environmental barriers that hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. It goes on to note that persons with disabilities include those who have long-term physical, mental, intellectual, or sensory impairments, which in interaction with various barriers may hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. So in summary, I want you to take home the message that disability does not lie in the individual alone. As you can see from these definitions, disability lies also in the environment and other people with who the person with an impairment interacts with. Non-visible or invisible disability. An invisible disability doesn't mean that it is hidden or it is not or it does not exist it is real it is there an example of invisible disabilities are for example autism which means different way of experiencing the environment different ways of processing information or dyslexia which means uh, someone is uh, very good at uh, creative ways of processing information. So an invisible disability is 
diverse because people can have various invisible disabilities mixed or present at the same time. It is dynamic because it can change throughout the day. So in the morning, when you start the day, you feel more energy, but it depends how many meetings you have, how much work you have. Maybe at the end of the day, you are more tired and your needs would change. And it is multidimensional because there, are, there is an intersectionality. So there is gender, there is race, and then there is the environment, the physical environment, and the other people with whom you are interacting. So, approximately 25% of the population is neurodivergent. So the rest of the population, we say that they are neurotypical because they, they are neurologically typical. Neuro refers to the brain and the nervous system in all the body, not just the brain. And diversity is a term that is coming from biology, which, which means everything is diverse. So Neurodiversity means diversity in neurology. And the infinite symbol that is used to represent neurodiversity is such because there is an infinite diversity of presentations of neurodivergence and neurodiversity. So the whole human population is neurodiverse, but there is a percentage of the population, as far as we understand, is 25% who are neurodivergent. But as a whole, the human population is neurodiverse. Neurodivergence is not a disease. It is not a mental illness and it is not a collection of deficits. Things that I want you to remember from this lecture is that some neurodivergent people do not see themselves as, as disabled. And some neurodivergent people refer to themselves as neurodiverse. These are personal choices. In general, neurodiversity, sorry, neurodivergence means that we have different brain functions and we have different ways of learning and processing information, different to the rest of the 75% of the population. So if it is not a collection of deficits, then, then what it is? And I am having in this slide a table that can give you examples of the multiple strengths of various neurodivergent presentations. Typically, when talking about neurodivergence, you will know about autism, ADHD or ADD, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, dyslexia, Tourette's. All these terms that I just said are clinical terms, which are used by doctors to diagnose something. But what I want you to see is the collection of strengths that a person would have while having these neurodivergent presentations. And to understand that someone that is autistic could, could be also dyspraxic and have dyslexia and have a different combination of the strengths. So for example, people with autism have intense hyperfocus excellent visual skills, they value, they are value-driven and uh, integrity and honesty is very important for them. They are very good at create creativity and problem solving just as someone with a, a ADHD or ADD or someone with dyscalculia or with dyspraxia or dyslexia. 
autistic people also are have an ability to work unsupervised and they have very strong analytical and critical thinking skills just as someone with dyslexia they are very determined and they have very good observational skills whereas someone with HDHD or ADD will be very good at working under pressure have an intense energy and a very good complete uh, urgent task. Someone that will be very good at multitasking and will be able to shift tasks very easily. Uh, they have visible enthusiasm. They will be very good in perseverance. They will have excellent memory and observational skills. Someone with dyscalculia will have very practical ability, very intuitive, and will be very good at strategic thinking, just as someone with dyspraxia. Someone with dyspraxia will have high levels of literacy and will be holistic thinkers, apart from all the other strengths that I already mentioned. Someone with dyslexia will have an ability to think in three dimensions, and maybe more. We have very strong verbal skills, and they are very strong visual thinkers. They are also good at math and mechanical thing thinking. And someone with Tourette's will be able to process language faster than the general population, and we have enhanced language skills often have enhanced memory as well, self-control, and will find it easy to pick up new skills. So all these examples, you can read more about them because they are reported by the Institute of Leadership and Management in a publication called Workplace Neurodiversity, The Power of Difference, Part 2. So what is, this, what is the state of neurodivergent people in employment? There are multiple reports and guides. I am listing them here. I have a list of six. And uh, the situation is sadly not positive. Uh, there is much work to do to improve the inclusion of neurodivergent in employment. So I'm just going to read the guys, in case someone uh, with a visual disability is hearing this presentation. The first report is uh, the voices of our industry, BIMA Tech Inclusion and Diversity report from 2019. The second one is championing, championing better work and working lives and optimize the author this report, oh, sorry, this guide called Neurodiversity of Work Guide 2018. The third one is uh, authored by Data and Marketing Association, DMA Talent. And the guide is called Autism Employer Guide, in, in, and it was published in 2019. The fourth one is the Autism Act, 10 years on, a report from the All Party Parliamentary Group on Autism, on understanding services and support for autistic people and their families in England. It was published in 2019, and if you look at it, there is a section on employment. The fifth one is Neurodiversity at Work, published in 2016, and it is a research paper by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And the sixth one was just recently published this year, and it's called Workplace Neurodiversity, the Power of Difference, authored by the Institute of Leadership and Management. It is a collection of reports and one case study. All these, you can find them online. They are open access. Continuing on what is the state of neurodivergent people in employment. As I said, it is not positive. Uh, there are still many stereotypes uh, regarding neurodivergence, and uh, many neurodivergent employers report mental health issues as a result of disabling working environments, 
which span across organizational structures, physical environment, as well as social expectations. One example of uh, the learnings that you would be able to find in these reports that I mentioned is, for example, the VIMA report of 2019, which says that the incidences of anxiety and depression appear much higher in the neurodivergent, that is 84%, compared to the neurotypical, that is 49%. And discrimination based on gender, ethnicity, neurodiversity, and age are, on part of, are of particular concern. Whereas, for example, the CIPD and Optimus uh, Guide will tell you that uh, there is a substantial risk with interviews that uh, are ill-informed, unempathetic uh, by interviewers, that could make negative judgments on an applicant's suitability for a role. So just to explain this in simple words, if you have an interviewing panel that doesn't understand neurodivergence, they will make assumptions and expectations on, on how someone should behave and answer based on a neurotypical expectation. And when they meet someone that is neurodivergent, they are unable to understand the, the, the strengths and qualities. And that is a risk, it's, it's a high risk. So what is happening at UCL in terms of neurodiversity? So from May 2019, we form a network and we call it the Neurodivergent Staff Network, which is formed by and for neurodivergent staff. It was our idea uh, and we are now gaining some support from UCL, especially from the Department of Equality and Diversity. Uh, another example is that this year uh, UCL launched the Sunflower Lanyard, uh, which means that you can uh, carry a lanyard with sunflowers. And if someone at UCL sees that they, they understand that you have a disability that could be visible or non-invisible, but the main message is that they need to be understanding, they need to be patient and accept you as, as you are. And obviously it's a, a voluntary action that you can take, but just know that uh, this launch included training of UCL facilities staff. So it, it was not just launching a launcher, it, it included training of UCL staff. Um, another thing that happened recently is that uh, the neurodivergent uh, staff network had been working on bringing training to UCL on neurodivergence. And we managed to do that in October, on the week of the 5th of October. And the training is permanently available for, for everyone to see. I will give you more information in another slide. Uh, other things that are happening at UCL in terms of neurodiversity is that the disability quality steering group is taking into account uh, neurodiversity. The Enable Network is growing and is, is uh, getting members that are neurodiverse, some of them disclosing their neurodiversity. Uh, I, myself, as a researcher at UCL, I am integrating neurodiversity in my own research in computer science, human-computer interaction, disability, and assist assistive technology. Other examples is, uh, for example, the master degree at the Global Disability Innovation Hub on Disability Design and Innovation includes topics on neurodiversity, as well as a uh, master at the Interaction Center for Computer Science. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about neuro, the Neurodivergent Staff Network. So in this slide, I have a logo. So if you imagine four vertical bars, and then one of those bars is slightly bended, and that bended bar represents that 25% of the human population that is neurodivergent, whereas the other three, which are the 75%, represent the ones that are 
non-neurodivergent. As I said before, we are self-identified neurodivergent staff only. Uh, so far, we are around 29, and we interact using Microsoft Teams. We have monthly peer support meetings, as well as a monthly action group meeting. And to give you an example of uh, where, where we are from, I put uh, the faculties from which we, where we are, and uh, we are not just academics, we, we, we have members from the Information Services Division, from the Office of the Vice Provost uh, Quality, Diversity and Inclusion, as well from the Research and Education and Student Affairs Office from human resources and, and all the other faculties which are population health, Bartlett, uh, social and historical sciences, medical sciences, and uh, arts and humanities, mathematical and physical sciences, engineering, brain sciences, from the Institute of Education, from IT staff uh, specific for faculties, and uh, from student and registry services. So why, why we need this network? We need this network because uh, mental health problems resulting from inaccessible ways of working and communicating at UCL is, is something we should be worried about. And we want also to achieve a sense of belonging and peer support at UCL. Uh, what we do, uh, we do initiatives to remove, remove disabling factors at UCL and improve peer support. How do we do what we do? Well, we talk to each other with honesty and confidence and seek support from allies across UCF. One of the initiatives that we have achieved is uh, creating a remote meeting guideline, which is publicly, publicly available in the website of the slide. And uh, you just need to search for accessible remote meeting guideline, and then UCL, and then neurodivergent, and then you will find it. So why do we need this guide? <laughs> so an overload of information, for example, having video, chat, and audio, makes it difficult to understand what people are saying, leading to overwhelm and fatigue. Also, a lack of an agenda or a chair not enforcing rules means that we do not know when to talk. And we need time to process information. Uh, then any attempt from neurodivergent people to hide information overload, uncertainty, or insufficient processing time can lead to mental health problems like anxiety, depression, and harmful stimming. Another of the initiatives that have been successful is a week of training, which was titled Understanding Neurodivergence, that we launched on the 5th of October of uh, 2020. And uh, you can check the outline of this training accessing this sway with your UCL account uh, that is in the slide that I'm presenting now. The learning material is permanently available to all UCL staff and students, and you can enroll yourself through Moodle. So far, we have had a survey with 20 responses after people have, ha have taken the training, and uh, the rating so far is 4.6. So taking into account that it's the first time we are doing this, I think we are having a good start and we are going to improve it. Just to give you an idea of the impact of this understanding neurodivergence training at UCL is uh, that we ask one question before and after regarding how people felt about their knowledge on neurodivergence and neurodiversity. So before there were zero people feeling extremely confident after there was one. 
Before, there were two people feeling quite confident. After the training, there were 10. Before the training, there were seven people feeling moderately confident. And after the training, there were eight. And before the training, there were 11 people feeling not at all confident about neurodiversity and neurodivergence. After the training, we had only one. So what do we need from our neurotypical managers or colleagues at UCL? In the following three slides, I will present answers that we got from our neurodivergent staff network members regarding this question. We would like them to know that uh, we may need very specific instructions for tasks. We may need extra explanations if something is worded vaguely or ambiguously. Some of us are performing under high anxiety to achieve the appearance of coping well. Some of us need to manage daily work on top of managing discrimination and accidental ignorance from our colleagues. We are permanently trying to understand their ways of working and communicating. We expect the same from them. Unfortunately, NHS services and support for neurodivergent are deficient and getting diagnosed does not solve everything. For some of us, the impairment is not immediately identifying when a colleague is having difficulties, therefore we are not able to help immediately and as expected. Uh, as I presented to you, we have wrote a, a guideline and it will be really good if you read it and, and try to incorporate it to your ways of working. We would love for them to learn that, uh, or we would love for them to develop their tolerance of silence or acquire posts as gaps of silence are needed to gather our thoughts during meetings and conversations. We would love for them to learn about the double empathy problem. I invite you to type it on your web browser, double empathy problem and the keyword autism. About multiple neurodivergence variety and variability, as some of us have multiple presentations of neurodivergence, to learn about the positives and strengths of neurodivergence, as I have shown you in a previous slide, and to learn about existing accessibility guidelines for documents and the web. Lastly, we need them to understand that sometimes it takes longer to do something, sometimes it takes longer to process an idea, sometimes it takes longer to process the neurotypical ways of thinking, and some of us have experienced years of discrimination and we may be in a defense mode. It is difficult to figure out if people are genuine, disingenuous or exploiting. And we need them to understand our ways of working and approaching problems. So I invite you all to take the training in Moodle. We need them to be mindful about how some neurodivergent presentations have to be considered when putting work teams together to leverage their strengths instead of enabling clashes. Bespoke management training will need to be developed to manage this. And intervention resources and training that is led and provided by 100% neurotypical are not ideal, so I invite you to seek trainers and resources that are co-led by neurotypical and neurodivergent. 
and be mindful about mainstream media that portrays and disseminates stereotypes and negative depictions of neurodivergent individuals. And please do not represent autism with a puzzle. So I want to say thank you for viewing, reading, or listening this presentation. I would really like to interact with you, and I invite you to ask questions. Hey, Daphne, thank you very much for um, this thorough uh, presentation. So now we're just going to give some time for questions and answers. So we encourage you to post some questions if you have. Um, so, yeah, if you have, I'm going to go through them on slightly. Just give me a couple of seconds. I'm just going to post a question myself. Okay, um, so let's go for the first question that I can see here. So uh, someone is saying, hi, Daphne, could you please pass the links for the resources you are sharing somewhere here in Slido? Because from YouTube, we cannot click. Thanks. Um, so, well, <laughs> maybe, I mean, you can leave it to me, Daphne, if you want, you can send them to me on Teams and then I'll post them here on Slido. Thank you. Well, that was the first question. Uh, second question that comes, uh, what research projects on neurodivergence are you working on at the GDI Hub? This is a very good question. Um, so one, one very interesting that I'm doing now is uh, related to autistic adults. So you will often hear me say that instead of adults with autism because uh, the autistic community in the United Kingdom prefers to be called autistic uh, whereas, for example, in the USA, they prefer to be called a, a person or an individual with autism. But it goes down to the individual, individual, individual. So always ask first. If someone says to you that they are autistic or a person with autism, just listen carefully and follow that. Um, okay, so, so going to the question, uh, it, it is related to that. So, so in computer science, you will see a lot of research that is aimed at developing technology to improve several aspects of being human in this world that are directed to children with autism or autistic children. And, and this is a good thing, yes? However, it is not good that the majority of this research is aimed at children, whereas adults are autistic. So children do not outgrow, outgrow autism. This is a stereotype. If a, children, if a child is born with autism, the child will grow and, and continue being autistic. The difference is that an autistic person learns techniques and they may learn to hide some of their presentations and they may appear neurotypical, but they are still autistic. And some autistic people find it easy, some not, uh, and some don't want to change it. Why would you change the way you are to fit the 75% of the population? So, so my point is that I want human-computer interaction to improve and take into account autistic adults. So I am doing a literature review of past work that has dedicated the work to autistic adults to understand what has happened in the past and therefore give the computer science community uh, a snapshot of what has been happening in the past, plus recommendations of how to include autistic adults in research. That's one of the projects that I'm doing. And apart from that, I have other projects that I frequently suggest to MSc master's students to take on. And it always depends on the master's students because master's students always have the decision uh, whether they want to do a project on neurodivergence or not, it's their decision. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, so the next question is, uh, apologies if you touched on these, but could you let me know where you hope the next steps of your research will take you? I think it will take me, so I see myself doing, continuing research in human-computer interaction, disability and assistive technology. 
with neurodivergence, including neurodivergence, because disability, as, as we talk, is, is, a, is, a, is complex, multidimensional, diverse. So I don't want my research just to be about neurodivergence. I want to continue having this intersectionality. So I do see myself continuing within that uh, path where I do research on human-computer interaction, disability, and assistive technology, including neurodiversity. But not only research, I would continue working, for example, for the Global Disability Innovation Hub whenever I can. And uh, I have already started uh, doing work at UCL, as you have uh, seen, on uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion. So as part of my role as a senior research associate, I'm not only doing uh, research, I'm also doing something that UCL calls uh, institutional citizenship. So, so the, the knowledge that I'm gaining from my own research is also used to improve uh, employment uh, situation, the employment situation within UCL for other staff and students. So it's not only about research, when I see a future of myself and where it will lead me is a combination of research, institutional citizenship and engagement with uh, non-governmental organizations. Okay, thank you, Daphne. Uh, the next question, which I was asking is, uh, because you mentioned to stop using the puzzle symbol for representation. So I was just wondering what, what is the symbol? Is this like an actual icon or or yes, it is a it's a symbol that an organization uses to represent autism. And the reason I'm advising you not to use it is because uh, there has been um a, a quite a an arguable uh, moment between the autistic community and this specific organization uh, where, where they have decided to utilize the medical model of disability, which means a disability is a problem that needs to be fixed or cured. And by taking that approach, they have ignored what most of the autistic community thinks, which is they don't want a cure. So when a non-governmental organization wants a cure and is not listening to the community and is, is utilizing that symbol to, to represent what they stand for, it causes distress to some people. So I'm recommending you not to do that. And I'm, I'm basically giving giving you some tips that will save you uh, problems. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for that, Daphne. Um, so next question is, do you think that parents have a responsibility to get an official diagnosis of neurodivergence if they think their child is displaying symptoms? This is a very difficult question to answer. First, because I don't have children. But as someone that is neurodivergent, I think if a child is visibly um, struggling and their environment where they live, the specific school that they attend, the specific society where they live, the specific country where they live, requires the diagnosis to provide the support that the child needs, then if I was a parent, I would seek the diagnosis. But then you also need to take into account the, the other spectrum where someone is born in a country which is a highly resourced country and uh, there may be a school that already has experience with children that, that are neurodivergent and uh, you have parents that are aware of neurodivergence or maybe they are unaware but they were they they were their way of educating their children is a very inclusive way they may not need support 
because they already have it. And and even when the child grows, then everyone may think, oh, this this is a typical child, whereas the child is neurodivergent. And until they reach an adult life and they start working in a different country or in a company which is not inclusive, they will start developing mental health problems. And the mental health problem is just a result of the non-inclusive environment, not directly from their disability. And that's when adults start having problems and start seeking diagnosis. And that's why many people don't have a clinical diagnosis until their adult life. So every case is different. Every person is different, even among neurodiversion individuals, every individual is different. And the environment is a huge factor in terms of how much support they need. So going back to the question, I hope I try to explain that this is definitely a very difficult question to answer. I hope that helps. Ask again if I didn't help. Uh, thank you, Daphne. Um, so, are you aware of other networks? Oh, sorry. Uh, okay, let's go for a different question. Uh, so, uh, Francesco says, thanks, Daphne. Regarding including neurodivergent participants in research projects, current ethics review processes at UCL require we identify if people belong to a vulnerable group. My feeling is that we would not necessarily define as vulnerable. What would you advise when designing research? Yeah, okay. So I would advise you to be aware of the challenges that various presentations of neurodivergence have. For example, uh, there can be sensitivity to light, uh, smells and sounds. Uh, there can be the need to explain things in very simple words and efficient. There can be the need of changing the way you, you choose your methods, your research methods, for example, if you want to do interviews. It may matter whether you do them in person or remotely, or whether you send your participants questions in advance. It would matter depending on the neurodivergent presentation. So it's not just about defining your population as vulnerable or not vulnerable, because we we can see cases in which neurodivergent people are vulnerable during very specific conditions and not vulnerable during other conditions. So when you write a proposal and start studying the risks, in my personal experience, I just I mean, just very explicit that I will not recruit, for example, someone with an intellectual disability. I generally do not mention neurodiversity or neurodivergence because some ethics uh, committees are not well aware. And as I mentioned before, UCL uh, has never had a training on neurodivergence before. Just this October, we had the first one, and an attendance, in my personal opinion, was not wide enough to reach ethics committees. So, so for the time being, I would advise you not to mention or try to explain your ethics application, what a neurodivergent person is, and how you you say that this is not a vulnerable person. Just try to avoid situations like, for example, recruiting children, unless you are experienced on that and you have the right tools and advice by your uh, line manager or supervisor. So I feel that I'm going away from the question. Roxana, can you please <laughs> tell me the question again? You are muted. 
sorry, yes. The question is, uh, current ethics review process at UCL require we identify if people belong to a vulnerable group. My feeling is that we would not necessarily define as vulnerable. What would you advise when designing research? Hmm. Okay, so I, I gave some advice already. Uh, and that's precisely one of the problems because even the guidance of UCL in terms of writing the ethics application, it doesn't have any definition for neurodivergence and it only it only says vulnerable persons. Uh, so someone with a disability is not necessarily vulnerable. Um, and I, I think Roxanne is also experiencing that. So if you want to share, please go ahead. <laughs> but I think uh, both, both of us have had experience uh, applying for ethics. And, and as we mentioned before, both of us are working in our research environment is, is that we are constantly uh, interacting with people with uh, different disabilities. And also note that uh, uh, one of the things that I want to change in UCL cultures, for example, uh, you could email me and I could send you an ethics application sample. I am very happy to do that. Uh, the only thing that just I need to be careful is I, I wouldn't invite you to email me to ask me basics about ethics application because that's, that there's a, there's a department to do that. But I am happy for you to, to say to me, I am thinking of doing this study and uh, it involves uh, this group of people with disabilities. And I have consulted with my ethics committee and they said this and that, I don't know. But the point is that uh, I want to have a more open culture in UCL and, and help us help each other. So if we can help each other uh, not working twice because I have done ethics applications before I could share them with you. Of course, I need to speak with my learner manager first, but that 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 would be fine. <laughs> I can handle that. Um, I mean, just to extend a bit on what you mentioned, basically, um, I who, who work on research with people with mobility impairments, um, I would also say that they don't need to be considered vulnerable and I would be looking in my case, for example, looking at adults who are able to consent, who are able to understand uh, the nature of the research that we are performing. And as long as, you know, they, they fit into this category and they're, uh, yeah, I mentioned adults, uh, I don't see why they, there's a necessary need to, to call them vulnerable. However, I think it is important to accommodate for whatever requirements, like accessibility requirements. So for instance, as I mentioned, because I, I, I've been working with people with mobility impairments and obviously make sure that uh, buildings are accessible and uh, we're also able to accommodate for whatever needs that they that might arise during the, um, the experiment or the interview or whatever you're holding. And, and in general, I think just keeping in, uh, like being aware and, and empathetic of, of the participants in your research, which applies as well to everyone really, right? I mean, uh, I think it's just a good research practice in general. Um, okay, so- I, I would like to add something else. Because it goes to research, um, what I have seen also is that uh, even before you write your ethics application, you would have had a time of thinking of your research and planning it. And that's a place in which you can include people with disabilities. So if you have a specific group, try to contact a charity that specializes in that disability, or maybe there is a support network locally that you can contact and engage with them and talk to them and say, I want to do this research. Is this something that uh, you would be interested? Uh, is, is it uh, sound? Uh, to you, uh, what would you need me to do to for you to be able to participate in this study? Or maybe they tell you, why are you doing that? Uh, I, I don't have any problem with that. And, and that's also very important because research should be responding to needs. Okay, thanks, Daphne. Um, I think this is the final question for now. Well, unless someone writes one now, but for now is the final question. Are there any areas of research that you think would help neurodiverse candidates before they enter the workplace and after they have joined the workplace? 
Yes, so there is a really good guideline for that that would explain things much better than I can verbally do right now. And I'm going to share again that slide. Okay, so this is good because uh, I promise that I need to give you the links to this guide and, and Roxana will type them in the slide. So you're able to type in the slide, right, Roxana? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, regarding this question that uh, was uh, expressed right now, so look at the guides. So number two is a guide. And this one is general to neurodiversity, and it has a very good section of on advice to neurodivergent before applying to a job and after applying to it. And it covers all aspects from uh, applying to the in job vacancy, interview process, asking for reasonable accommodations, also uh, what you need to tell to your land manager. And one thing that is important, I think, that you need to think about is whether you want to disclose your neurodivergence or not. That's something you need to give a lot of thought. And I think it also involves a lot of research from your part because you will need to try to understand what is the situation in that specific company regarding employment for neurodivergent or anyone with disability. Uh, for example, uh, do they have a specific department on equality, diversity and inclusion? Do they have internal support networks by and for disabled staff? Try to check that type of thing. So what I'm going to do right now is look for the links of each of these guys. So I will get six links. We still have time anyway. I will do it quickly. And then I will give that to Rosanna and she will put this in the slide. So while I'm doing this, I'm going to mute myself, okay? Great, uh, no worries. Uh, thank you, Daphne. Uh, just here, a comment from Francesco. He says, thanks, Daphne and Roxana. That was very helpful. I'll be in touch via email for some more questions. Um, okay, so no problem. We're here to answer the questions, hopefully. <laughs> um, and well, in general, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today, the audience, and hope, hope you enjoyed the talk. I'd also like to give a big thank you to Daphne for joining us today and for sharing with us some amazing insights. You will receive an email in the next day or so with a short feedback survey and also the upcoming schedule of lectures. We hope to see you at another lecture soon, so stay well. And yeah, just bear with us while we share the links on Slido. Uh, 